From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Citizenship and Immigration Services says it'll postpone employee furloughs it had planned until at least the end of August. CIS Deputy Director for Policy Joseph Edlow writes to employees that the agency thinks now it can meet its expenses through the end of fiscal 2020. GovExec reports the agency was going to start the furloughs August 3rd. Eleven Democrats on the House Oversight and Reform Committee, including Chair Carolyn Maloney, are asking appropriators and congressional leaders to add a minimum of a billion dollars to the Technology Modernization Fund. A letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Appropriations Chair Nita Lowy, and Ranking Member Kate Granger cites $14 million of TMF spending at HUD that will save the agency $8 million a year. The signers of the letter want the money included in the next coronavirus relief package. Another technology leader's leaving at the Defense Department. Jack Wilmer will leave his job as Deputy Chief Information Officer for Cybersecurity at the end of the month. FedScoop reports Wilmer's leaving to take a job in the private sector. The House and Senate versions of the National Defense Authorization Act both include several amendments from the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Senator Angus King and Representatives Mike Gallagher and Jim Langevin have introduced dozens of amendments, a number of them appearing in the final bills each chamber passed. Ari Schwartz is Managing Director of Cybersecurity Services at Venable, former Special Assistant to the President, Senior Director for Cybersecurity. Ari, welcome. Uh, thanks for coming back on the program. What of these amendments in both chambers do you think are the most important ones to pay attention to? Well, I think really the most important one is the, the call for a cyber directorate in the White House and a national cyber director. Even if it doesn't pass, I think it does put pressure on this White House and future White Houses to have a director and have a directorate uh, that is uh, commensurate with the mission uh, that is in front of them. What does that office look like according to the recommendations of the commission? What does that comport with what you did and what does that comport with what others have done at the White House level in cyber? The recommendation was really to have a office that is about 50 people. And right now we're talking an office that is maybe six or seven people. Um, so it is a much larger when, when in the Obama administration it was 12 people at largest uh, or so. So it's still much larger than that, but uh, they've cut back. They haven't gone in the direction that Congress seems to be moving, uh, which is to have a much larger office. Also, that office has been inside the National Security Council. They want this office to instead to be outside and be more like something like the U.S. Trade Representative Office, et cetera, which is a White House office, but it's a, it, it is, um, has connections to other parts of the White House and uh, is, uh, has more engagement with the, directly with the agencies as well, more detailees. What's your sense of how the mission would be different in that 50-person organization headed by a cyber director than the 12-person office that you were part of? Well, I think it depends on how it's done. In the way that they're talking about it in this bill, it seems pretty clear that it would have a lot more interaction directly with Congress, a lot more accountability to Congress. Um, I think that's part of the, the, the allure to the members of Congress here. Um, also, I think it would have a lot more uh, kind of international standing, ability to negotiate internationally on cybersecurity issues and then cyber norms issues. 
The, the main difference that I saw as I tried to understand these structures was the, the, this difference, the shift from the NSC to this individual office. What difference would that make for interaction with organizations like Cyber Command, with CISA, with other organizations where cybersecurity is a primary mission across the enterprise of the federal government? I think in terms of uh, coordination across, uh, it probably wouldn't make that much difference from the viewpoints of the agencies to what the cyber director did under the Obama administration. Right now, there isn't really a cyber director at that kind of level, so uh, it would bring that back, uh, but it wouldn't have that much of an impact there. Where I think the White House right now and White Houses in the future would have problems is the Senate confirmation, because then you have issues, uh, uh, constitutional issues. Uh, right now, you know, if it's, when, when you're talking about the fact that in this legislation it says that they can call a National Security Council meeting, um, and the, the, but yet the person's not in the NSC or is loosely tied to the NSC, that's, that becomes a problem constitutionally. And I think that, that you're, uh, we haven't heard the White House's rationale for not uh, wanting this bill, but I would assume that that's gonna be very high in the list is that you have Senate confirmation tied to a national security position. Uh, in the White House, which has never happened before. Another amendment that's attracted some attention is from Senator King on the, obviously on the Senate side of uh, the, in the Senate NDAA, and that would review the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS. What's your take on what that looks like and, and how all of this could wind up offending, uh, uh, affecting CISA uh, in the long run? Yeah, so this has this, the CISA director do a review um, of the size and scope of the organization and whether they can actually do the mission that they're uh, asked to do effectively. And uh, I think most people would agree that right now they're not really staffed to do that. They don't have the right staff. They don't have the right number of staff to do it. They don't have the way to get that staff. Um, so, uh, you know, I do think that there would be a push to do that. And then that, that report goes to Congress and to GSA and then GSA has to report on it as well. Uh, and talk about how they're going to make changes to get to that point. Um, so I, uh, I think that it could be effective in uh, corralling uh, resources towards CISA in the future. To your point about the consensus that CISA doesn't have the right employee mix, they don't have enough people, what do they need? What, what are the skill sets? What are the, the, what are the personnel numbers that they aspire to that they don't have right now, Ari? You know, they're, they're known, uh, they've been, for example, on the uh, election security piece, they went from state to state and had flyaway teams that would go from state to state, but they really have only a few really qualified flyaway teams to do that work. Uh, and those work, and those people are very highly become, as they do that work, become very highly attractive in the private sector. So it's hard to keep them. So they're going to need like a flow of bodies in, into CISA in order to keep these flyaway teams and keep the quality of the flyaway teams at the level that it needs to be to really do that kind of work, that it can go into a state and do a risk assessment and give back good feedback as to what needs to be done to improve, and then come back to make sure that that work has been, uh, is being done, et cetera, at the request of the state. Ari Schwartz. an example, and then critical infrastructure too. Ari Schwartz, thanks very much for coming on. Sorry to cut you off, I appreciate you being on today. Uh, thank you very much. Up next, tracking the junk floating around in space. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who's keeping track of satellites and space debris and why it matters? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The White House has given the Commerce Department authority to regulate satellites and space debris, but some members of Congress think that power should go to the Federal Aviation Administration instead. There could be more than 400 collisions and 17 million close calls in space over the next 10 years. Caitlin Johnson's associate director of the Aerospace Security Project, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Caitlin, thanks very much for coming on the program. What's the lay of the land here? Why does commerce have this authority now? Why do some people think the FAA should have it? Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me. This has been kind of a quietly but also hotly debated topic for a few years. So um, it's bipartisan, um, or to say that there, it's not drawn along partisan lines. There are members of both parties who think that the responsibility of tracking um, space objects, which includes satellites and debris, should belong with the Department of Commerce. And some believe it should belong in the Department of Transportation and more specifically under the FAA. Um, in 2018, the White House put out a new space policy directive assigning this responsibility to Congress, kind of taking that uh, the step and the authority to create a, a new office that would focus on providing this basic level of space situational awareness, or SSA, um, for the entire world, um, not just the United States and our own satellite operators. What I don't see in any of the breakdowns that I read was I don't see the military component of this. Obviously, a lot of the stuff that's up there has at least some mission to do with the military. How does that fit into all of this, especially given the conversations you and I have had on many occasions about the creation of the Space Force. Of course, so actually the military is at the heart of this. Um, and the Space Force is 18th um, Control Squadron at Vandenberg, currently provides the, the SSA services and um, the data. So the, the Space Force is responsible right now for managing all of the assets that track these objects in space, and then they give the data on an open source, uh, it's a web page, um, but an open source database for anybody to use. Um, and the the crux here of, of why it's such a big decision of if it goes to Congress or to transportation is that this at its heart is not a military mission. Even though there are military satellites in space, um, traffic control is not the military's job, and the Space Force should be just spending its time and its efforts and its finances on military missions instead of controlling traffic in, in outer space for everybody. So what's the what's the kind of the worldwide governance look like as far as this goes, if anything? Is there any organization that is coordinating whose stuff is where and, and all of that? There are international organizations um, that control a little bit, a little piece of this puzzle. So um, the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, I believe, um, has control over uh, geostationary orbit, assigning basically parking spots in space for satellites in this really um, exquisite orbit. But that's it. The United States has actually taken on this traffic cop type role out of necessity for its own satellites, but also because there is no other organization doing this mission. Are there potentially any obstacles, drawbacks, issues with creating the system given 
the tensions that we have, for example, with Russia and China, they may not like the idea that we've decided to take this role or that we've kind of taken it by default. Uh, or they may have a different opinion about the way that things should be put into space and, of course, want to put their own things up there. What, what does that piece of this look like right now, Caitlin? Sure. So most nations, most um, large spacefaring nations like Russia, China, and the United States do have their own um, radar and tracking um, uh, system, I guess, um, for tracking objects in space. Um, so Russia and China are getting their own data, but the United States is, uh, our infrastructure is much, much more robust. The hope is that this new office, whether it ends up in commerce or transportation, would get buy-in not just from data sources from the United States and from the military who runs the system, but also from individual satellite operators um, who have data on where their own satellites are at, as well as other commercial um, companies that are seeing this niche as an opportunity for commercial gain and developing their own space tracking systems. We have about a minute left, Caitlin. What's the issue with all the junk that's up there? There's a lot of stuff that's been shot into space that's not being used anymore. It's just kind of floating around, leading to what I talked about in the beginning about potential collisions. Right. Everyone loves the space junk. It's the thing that my dad always asks me about first when he talks to me about my job. Um, the, the big crux of the, the matter is that there is a lot of stuff in space, both debris and operational satellites and satellites that are, as you mentioned, kind of dead and their mission is over. Um, but what's really scaring people is the projection of satellites going into lower Earth orbit. SpaceX has recently been approved to launch about 12,000 small satellites in the next, you know, five-ish years. And currently there are only 2,000 active satellites in that orbit. So you're talking about a 600% increase just from one company. The quote of the week on Government Matters, everyone loves the space junk. Caitlin Johnson, thanks very much as always. Of course, happy to be here. Up next, the Internal Revenue Service cracking down on waste, fraud, and abuse. Straight ahead on Government Matters. A big thumbs up to their efforts to catch identity theft before it happens. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Internal Revenue Service has cut its losses each year for fraud and identity theft. A new audit from the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration notes the agency's prevented identity thieves from getting nearly $2 billion in tax returns in the last payment year. Danny Werfels, Managing Director and Partner at Boston Consulting Group, former Acting Commissioner of the IRS. Danny, thanks for coming on the program. I'll forgive you for wanting to take maybe a little bit of a victory lap on this, because this is an effort that you really supercharged when you were IRS Commissioner. What's your takeaway from what TIGTA found when they looked at the work that the IRS is doing here? Well, first of all, I think, first of all, I, I will be honestly modest. Um, Identity theft certainly emerged when I was there as the acting commissioner as a big issue. Um, but a lot of the success uh, and, and infrastructure that was put in was put in after I left. One big takeaway, just interesting, is first of all, it's nice to have a positive report from an inspector general. 
you know, it, it typically I think the mindset in the government is that every time GAO or an IG goes in and studies something, uh, they always come out with, uh, with with a failing grade for the government. It sometimes feels that way. So you open this report and you know the conclusion is is that the results of the IRS efforts have been highly effective. It's a it's a nice reminder that not every time that something is audited or investigated is the news bad. So that that's one takeaway. The other more substantive takeaway is that you know I, I've always known this and it's not something that people recognize. The IRS is a high functioning organization. They do what they do well. Um, and administering the nation's tax system is not easy work. It's very complex. And in particular around enforcement, where you have uh, individuals or entities that look to defraud the government through the tax system, the IRS has to stay ahead of that. And what you see in this report is that for the past few years on the topic of identity theft, the IRS has taken steps and they have a current leg up on those entities or individuals that were seeking to defraud the government. It wasn't always that way. And when I was there, identity theft was emerging and the risk was, was rising quicker than we were ready to deal with it. But to the IRS's credit, they have caught up and put in measures that have given them the upper hand. I think the most important thing of all of those points that you make, which are all good ones and, and seem to comport with what I took away from the report as well, Danny, is your description of the agency as a high-functioning organization. The reason that that strikes me as the most important thing out of all that you just said is that that encourages the agency or should encourage the agency and the administration to go to Congress and say, here's a good reason to give this agency more money to be able to fix the infrastructure that's been bad for so many years and to find more people to do the jobs that they need to do so they can audit more people and all those kinds of things. You're well aware, and we've discussed in this program before, the downward trajectory of the top lines that the IRS has received, and it strikes me this is evidence that can be used by the agency to say, this is why you should help us help the taxpayer and help the bank account of the federal, of the federal government more. Yeah, it's, it, in many ways it's counterintuitive to underfund the IRS because the investments that you make actually have a positive return for the taxpayer. And this has been proven time and time again that um, as you increase the IRS's uh, modernization and ability to enforce the tax code so that people and entities pay what, what they're supposed to pay, what their balance due is, um, every dollar invested actually returns to the taxpayer and to the treasury more than the, uh, the dollar spent, sometimes significantly more. Um, the, the issue sometimes with the IRS not getting funded is a sense that they've in some, they are in some way are going to uh, go beyond their scope of enforcement or in times of, of, of scandal that the IRS has lost trust, which happened back in 2013 when there was the crisis that led to my arrival at the IRS. I always, I think, you know, we got to separate that out and realize that, that for the most part, 99.9% of the time in its history, the IRS is, is high functioning, 
works with extraordinary integrity and is a great investment for for federal budget dollars. So when you take those two things together, the fact that they have a positive return on investment and they're high functioning, it's a, it's a really important place to make sure it stays modern and ahead of, the, ahead of the curve. We have less than a minute left, Danny. What can other agencies learn? Basically, reducing fraud, reducing uh, identity theft are forms of improper payments, which you and I have talked about many times. What can other agencies learn about what the IRS did hear about improper payments? I think two things. One, the power of data, because what, what you have uh, that made them so effective was using forensic analytics to essentially profile those returns that were coming in that were higher risk for identity theft. And, and being more sophisticated with data allows the IRS to stay ahead of the fraudsters. And secondly, the public-private partnerships. What really energizes the results here um, is the fact that they're partnering with state and local governments, with private entities and financial institutions to understand where these odd activities are occurring or something that's suspicious in the return or the data that says, hey, this is not who the person or the entity says they are. With those types of handshakes and partnerships, again, you're staying ahead of the fraudsters. Danny Werfel, thanks very much as always. It's great to have you on the program. My pleasure, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.